university. Um, the other exciting thing that you can do while you're here, if you are not at the moment a member of the Latin Mass Society, you will have missed out on a £5 discount to come to this conference. Now, to, um, to console you in that uh, sad situation, um, you can go to Mr. Lord there and get a £5 discount today only on joining the Latin Mass Society. <laughs> So you won't be any worse off. Um, now that means actually joining the Latin Mass Society, which means signing on the dotted line. And now I know all sorts of people have um, a sort of psychological aversion to uh, signing things, um, <laughs> joining things. But the Latin Mass Society, as I hope you'll have experienced today, is not, um, uh, is not made up entirely of um, loonies. Um, <coughs> at least um, they're nice loonies <laughs> I like to think of it that way <laughs> and um, it really is um, a worthwhile organisation and this sort of event won't happen unless there's an organisation like that in my society because I can assure you this is not a profit making day for us um, I'm not complaining, it's what we do we put on events like this because it's part of our charitable objects but we can only do that with the support of our members um, but um, you all want to hear Bishop Schneider and not me. So um, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, Auxiliary Bishop of Astana in Kazakhstan, um, where he was born um, by an extraordinary series of um, historical um, happenstances, um, which I, 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 won't, I couldn't possibly go into. But it's, it's an amazing um, work of providence that he's found himself uh, back there um, and um, has been writing these books and is able to come and um, give um, solace to traditional Catholics um, all over the world, in fact. Um, this is his second visit to England, um, and we're very grateful indeed for him making this, this great journey um, to visit us here again. Reverend Fathers, dear priests, my dear brothers and sisters, I would like to speak to you about the theme, the renewal of the liturgy according to the perennial sense of the Church. The first point, the adoration of God, is an essential characteristic of the sacred liturgy. In order to increase the aspect of faith and the sense of adoration in the liturgical celebrations, first of all, there is necessary to know and to understand what is celebrated. There must be an integral and profound catechesis about <clears throat> the nature of the prayer and especially about the nature of the Holy Mass that means about the law of being of the prayer. The knowledge of the being or of the nature of the liturgy is only possible through the supernatural light of faith. From the being correctly known flows the adequate liturgical acting, acere sectitur esse, the Church has always admonished 
agnostite quod agitis, be aware of what you are doing. The words of the Lord, if you knew the gift of God, John 4, 10, refer in the most high manner to the Holy Mass. The liturgy of the Holy Mass is the celebration of the mystery of the faith as such, of the ineffable mystery of the adoration of the triune God, and in the same time, of the mystery of the human redemption. The Eucharistic liturgy is the most sublime realization of the first commandment of which Jesus has reminded us. You shall adore the Lord your God and worship him alone. Every time we participate in the Holy Mass, we should enter in the spirit of Christ, the adorer. Only Christ, the God-man, is capable to adore God in an adequate manner, since only he is the Holy One. St. Thomas Aquinas said that the proper act of the religion and consequently of the faith is this, to offer God reverence and adoration. St. John Paul II explained the very nature of the liturgy. I quote, The celebration of the liturgy is an act of the virtue of religion that, consistent with, with its nature, must be characterized by a profound sense of the sacred. In this, man and the entire community must be aware of being in a special way in the presence of him who is three times holy and transcendent. Consequently, the attitude of imploring cannot be permeated, cannot but be permeated by reverence and by the sense of awe that comes from knowing that one is in the presence of the majesty of God. Did God not want to express this when he ordered Moses to take off his sandals before the burning bush? Did not the attitude of Moses and Eli, who dared not look at God face, faciat faciam, face to face, arise from this awareness? So the end of quotation. In the liturgy of the Holy Mass, all details, even the smallest, have the reason of their existence in the proclamation of the glory of God and not of the glory of man. All things in the liturgy of the Holy Mass, beginning with the sign of the cross until the final benediction should say, Propter magnam gloriam tuam, and non nobis domine, non nobis, set nomine tuo da gloriam. God has no need of our praise, and the fact that we can praise him is a gift of God. 
Our praise does not increase His glory, but gives us salvation. And the second point is the liturgical norms and interior adoration. The fact that there are precise liturgical norms which have to be faithfully observed belongs to the divine revelation. God himself has ordered his worship in the Old Testament. The liturgical norms should be, however, carried out with an interior attention. That means with the heart. And also this is a divine law as well. To establish an opposition between these two divine laws, the exterior norms and the attention of the heart, or an option between these two laws, this would be against the divine truth. Such a contrast have often been established by heretical movements, neglecting or refusing the exterior norms, for example, the Christian Gnostics in the second century, the Cathars and Albigensians in the 12th and 13th century, the Calvinists in the 16th century, and some Catholic Pentecostals and Catholic Progressists of various degrees in our days. The most sublime example for the exterior observance of the liturgical norms and in the same time of their execution with the heart gives us Jesus Christ himself. God has heard him for his reverence with which Jesus has prayed. So the, Hib the letter to Hebrew says, I quote, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. The Lord, his most holy mother Mary and Saint Joseph have faithfully observed all liturgical norms. St. Thomas Aquinas says in the hymn Pange Lingua that Jesus has fully observed the ancient law of the divine worship, observata lege plena. Since he did not came to abolish the law, but to bring it into fulfillment and perfection, the liturgical spirit of the divine Savior expresses itself in the faithful observance of the exterior norms together with the interior attention of the heart. This was, is, and will always remain an essential characteristic of the liturgy of the Church. The Apostles transmitted this spirit and the Church during 2,000 years has faithfully kept it. The disrespect of the exterior liturgical norms had always the odor of heresy. 
Relating to the liturgical norms, the Roman Church maintained always the principle formulated in the 3rd century, already in the 3rd century, by the Saint Pope Stephen I. I quote his, this short principle. Nihil innovetur, nisi quod tradidum est. I, I translate this in English. There should be no innovations unless it has been transmitted. Innovations with a characteristic of an obvious rupture with the tradition had all had been always been rejected on the part of the Roman Church. In the beginning of the 5th century, the Saint Pope Innocent I, in the letter to Decentius, Bishop of Gubbio, opposed himself to such innovations in the liturgy, saying he named the Saint Pope Innocent, named six points in this letter. First, what had been transmitted by the apostles, the bishops, have to observe this integrally. Second, there should not be admitted any substantial diversity and variety in the celebration of the holy sacrifice in the church. Third, such innovations who are in those times there were some introduced, he speaks, have not been transmitted, but appeared newly because everyone introduced what he liked. Unus quisque not quod tradidum est, sed quod sibi visum fuerit. Here Pope Innocence criticized the innovations in the beginning of the 5th century. Fourth, these innovations scandalize the people, fit scandalum populis. Fifth, these innovations in liturgy, they corrupt by human presumption the ancient traditions. Traditiones antiquas humane presumptione corruptas. And the sixth, in the liturgical norms, the Roman Church has always kept the ancient rules which were transmitted by the Apostles or by the Apostolic men. Regulas veteres quas, quas ab Apostolis vel Apostolicis vidis traditas Ecclesia Romana custodit. So, in liturgical reforms, the Roman Church followed always the ancient norm of the fathers, pristina norma patrum. This ancient norm of the fathers was stressed by St. Pius V in the bull Quam Primum, as well as by the Second Vatican Council in Sacrosanctum Concilium number 50, this, this word pristina Norma Patrum is quoted from Pius V. Furthermore, 
The Second Vatican Council has formulated this principle in Sacrosanctum Concilium 23, I quote, There must be no innovations in liturgy. A principle of Second Vatican Council. There must be no innovations unless the good of the Church genuinely, genuinely and certainly requires them. And care must be taken that any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. End of quotation. The third principle, the orientation of liturgical prayer. This is a requirement of the visible adoration of God. <clears throat> there is a need to regain all that which helps and augment the true liturgical spirit, which is the liturgical spirit of Jesus Christ himself. This liturgical spirit is character characteristic essentially by the reverence which is animated by the supernatural and filial love. The Second Vatican Council has taught us the true liturgical spirit which ultimately consists in the absolute primacy of God in the supernatural primacy, in the, in the primacy of the eternal, in the primacy of the contemplation. I quote the Council in Sacrosanctum Concilium number two. The human is directed and subordinated to the divine in liturgy. The visible likewise to the invisible. Action to contemplation and this present world to the city yet to come, which we seek. End of quotation. The apostles and the first Christians lived such a liturgical spirit. And so I quote Act of the Apostles 9, 31. They walked in the fear of the Lord, in timore domini. All the church, the first Christians, they walked, they lived in the fear of God. And then continues, and the church was edified, edified by the fear of the Lord. The sacred scripture gives to the church of all times a sublime model to be imitated in the liturgical celebrations. This model is the liturgy of the heavenly Jerusalem described in the book of the Apocalypse with concrete attitudes, gestures, and signs. So, uh, seven, seven um, these principles, attitudes, in the book of the Apocalypse, which is the liturgical book of the, of the first church. First, kneeling, deep inclinations, and prostrations we find in the Apocalypse. Apocalypse 4, 10, 7, 11. Second, incense in Apocalypse. Third, sacred songs, the new Canticum Novum, the new song. And Canticum Novum 
It means not performing a worldly or a sensual music, but singing in a spiritual and in a new manner of the redeemed creature. Apocalypse 5, 9. Fourth, to be free from the concentration on oneself, from the own glory and the glory of creatures. That is, and so we, the Apocalypse shows us that the, the elders and the angels and the saints, they put their own crowns at the feet of the throne of God and the Lamb. Fifth, to pray and sing together with the angels. That means to be conscious of the presence of the holy angels in the liturgy. This is also a principle. Six, there has to be a prolonged space of time for silence during liturgical celebrations. Apocalypse 8.1 says, There was silence in heaven. This was the liturgy in heaven. For about half an hour, silence. Do we have silence in liturgy? Thanks be to God in the traditional Mass, yes. We have at least during the canon, the canon, Roman canon, silence. In the, in the reformed new order, we have quite no silence. But it, when we, we have to be faithful to the, uh, the first church, this is the liturgy of the first church, half an hour silence. And the last point, to put Christ, the immolated and living Lamb of God, in the visible center of the liturgical assembly. This is continuously in the Apocalypse. This is the Lamb is in the center, the living Lamb. It means his throne, which is the cross, is the throne of the Lamb. And the Eucharistic tabernacle is the throne of the Lamb. This is, must be in the center and not the seat or the throne of the human celebrant in the center. <clears throat> Therefore, in the Eucharistic liturgy, there must be consequently avoided all that even in, in the least could obscure the glory of God and the centrality of Christ in his throne, in the cross, and in the Eucharistic tabernacle. Such an obscuring is unfortunately often given in our days, when the celebrant and the assembly are exalted in a self-absorbed manner by means of words, gestures, and by means of the position of the celebrant, celebrant in the center of the sanctuary, facing continuously the people like in a school lesson or in a theatrical performance, where all the attention of the assembly is directed inevitably to such a protagonist in person. In the order that the great Eucharistic mystery, in order that the great Eucharistic mystery might be understood, celebrated, and received with more awareness and fruit, 
there must be re-established at least the orientation of the liturgical prayer as the most indispensable gesture for achieving this aim. Praying while looking in the same direction is an exigency of the prayer itself and above all of the act of adoration. The gesture expresses bodily the truth that man and all the more the worshipping man and the whole praying church must be directed to God and concretely to Christ, the incarnate God, as to its ultimate aim. This rule of the prayer is not only a requirement of a praying man on the natural level, homo religiosus naturalis, but it, it was observed by the praying man on the level of the divine revelation. There are two levels, the level of natural prayer, this is the natural uh, knowing of God, and the supernatural, the essential different levels. But even so, this is a common principle. In this manner, um, were performed the prayers in the Temple of Jerusalem, in the same direction looking, or in the synagogue. In this manner prayed Jesus himself, his host, Most Holy Mother, and Saint Joseph when they visited the Temple or the synagogue. In this manner, Jesus prayed together with the Apostles during the Last Supper, since all were seated on one side of the table in, in the, and performed a half circle uh, in the form of the Greek letter Sigma. Looking together, Jesus and the Apostles in the same direction during the Last Supper, whereas Jesus was seated in the place of honor in the right corner, in corno dextero, as it is demonstrated by the most ancient artistic representation of the Last Supper in the catacombs. About this, Father Lang of the Oratory wrote, you know his book. Consequently, uh, Jesus and the Apostles, they did not pray facing each other. This norm of the prayer the Apostles have transmitted to the Church. Uh, there were above all the Fathers of the Church who stressed this norm, giving moreover a spiritual explanation. That means that the Christians must face during the prayer the East because Christ is the East in these great letters, East which visited us from on high, Oriens ex alto, the Benedictus. He is the son of justice, sol justitiae, and he will come again from the east. The fathers of the church and the perennial sense of the church have understood the cross of Christ as the true east, towards which to celebrate together with the whole liturgical assembly were termed, above all during the Eucharistic prayer, the moment of adoration as such. The words conversi ad dominum, let us turn towards the Lord, were pronounced by St. Augustine, for example, often 
after his homily, inviting all the, the assembly to turn bodily also, bodily towards the same direction in order to adore the Lord. The interior aspect for, of the turning towards the Lord demands necessarily the corresponding exterior expressions. In the Usus Antiquir of the Roman Rite, the celebrant says in the beginning of the Mass, Deus tu conversus vivificabis nos. O God, turn thy face upon us. Deus tu conversus. And the people, or the, the servants of the altar answer, et plebs tua letabitur in te, and thy people may rejoice in thee. Christ represented in the image of the cross upon the altar, or present in the tabernacle upon the altar, turns his face to the celebrating priest and to the people, inviting them to turn not only their heart, but also their bodies in the same direction, to the visible sign of the face of God, which is the cross, the crucifix, or the Eucharistic tabernacle. Furthermore, the form of the prayer when all are turning towards the same direction, does not only express in the most adequate manner the act of adoration, but also the act of offering the sacrifice to God. The Holy Mass is, is substantially the sacramental offering of the sacrifice of the cross. The bodily attitude by which the celebrant and the liturgical assembly are facing each other like a closed circle or like the sitting around the table, according to the modern profane custom, contradicts not only the law of the biblical, apostolic and patristic prayer and even the human religious law of prayer on the, on the natural level, but obscures considerably the essentially sacrificial aspect of the Holy Mass, giving to such an Eucharistic celebration, at least from the phenomenological point of view, the appearance of a supper table. There is a real urgency to return to the gesture of being turned towards the Lord, at least from the Eucharistic prayer on, since the so-called Celebration versus populum is not even prescribed in the new missal, but is an option according to the liturgical norms as it has affirmed the Holy See in a responsum ad dubium from September 25, 2000. There was a response stating from the Holy See that the new mass is not, uh, not an obligation to celebrate versus populum. And so, in the last point, the visible adoration and the rite of Holy Communion. There, here we have to cite once more the words of Jesus. If you knew the gift of God, if the faithful would know all the truth and deepness, not 
not what is, but who is the Holy Communion, he would spontaneously and gladly prostrate himself in the moment of receiving his God and Savior under the humble species of the bread, acknowledging in the same time his own littleness and unworthiness. St. Thomas Aquinas formulated the following so moving expression concerning this moment. Ores mirabilis manducat dominum servus pauper et humilis. A wonderful thing, the poor and humble servant eats his Lord. The moment of the Holy Communion is for the faithful the most moving, the most solemn, almost solemn, the most sacred and the most special moment in his life. When we recognize in Christ hidden under the veil of the Eucharistic species really the fullness of his divinity, since in him dwells bodily the fullness of the divinity, as said St. Paul, we could not behave in any other manner but kneel down before him, according to the example of the women in the morning of the Easter day, of the apostles before Christ ascending into heaven, of the saints and the angels in heaven before the immolated body of the Lamb of God. The manner when the faithful receives the most holy body of Christ directly in the mouth, the tongue, without touching it and without putting it with own fingers in the mouth, is from the point of view of the gesture more sacred. Indeed, touching a foot with one's fingers and putting it by yourself in the mouth resemble strongly the gesture of taking profane food. Furthermore, the gesture of allowing to be fed like a child expresses in a moving manner the unique true attitude of humility and of spiritual infancy in the moment of receiving the most sacred and greatest gift of God. Not at least the reception of the body of Christ, the most precious and at the same time the most fragile and defenseless treasure, demands the greatest care and attention in order that there may be avoided as much as possible the loss of even the smallest fragment and be avoided the danger of profanation and of stealing of hosts. This is proven by daily facts in the whole world, the loss of fragments and the stealing of hosts. Can we still be indifferent in the sight of these facts, the losing of fragments continuously, the stealing of hosts, can we be still indifferent in the sight of these facts? 
which should be for a soul loving Christ really horrible. Why not return to the manner well tried during a millennial period already, to a manner which is more safe and more sacred, that is receiving the body of Christ directly in the mouth and the tongue, avoiding thereby the loss of the fragments, avoiding and reducing considerably the cases of stealing hosts? Why not return to the docility towards the ardent admonitions of Pope Paul VI, who pleaded for the conservation of traditional manner of the rite of the Holy Communion in the whole Church, when in 1969 he stressed Hic sanctam communionem distributionis modus, hodierno ecclesiae stato in universum considerato servari debet. In English, this manner of distribution of Holy Communion, the traditional manner, must be retained everywhere in, the, in considering the situation of the Church in our days. Who is obedient to the voice of Paul VI? And further, I cite, Apostolica sedes, episcopos, sacerdotes et fidelis vehementer fortatur ut valide iterumque confirmate legi studiose obsequantur. In English, the apostolic see exhorts vehemently, vehemently, the bishops, priests, and the faithful to observe diligently the valid, traditional, and repeatedly confirmed law of receiving Holy Communion. Who obeys to this voice of Paul VI? Vehemently, he asked the bishops to be faithful to the traditional manner of Holy Communion distributing. As possible arguments in favor of continuing the practice of receiving the body of Christ standing and in the hand, these possible arguments in favor, they lose their consistency in the sight of the objectively grave and often horrible facts of the loss of the Eucharistic fragments, of the increasing stealing of the hosts, and of the considerable obscuration of the sacred, sublime, and solemn aspect of the most important moment for the faithful on, on these earths. There is indeed, there is the need of a renewed and ardent preferential option for the most poor and the most defenseless on, in these earths. This is the Eucharistic Jesus in the moment of the distribution of the communion. The faithful in the moment of receiving Holy Communion should hear interiorly this voice of the Lord addressed to him and to the whole Church, if you knew the gift of God. The true answer of the faithful and of the liturgical assembly to these words of the Lord should be the following, Lord, I believe, 
and adore, demonstrating this also bodily according to the perennial liturgical sense of the Church. And so in conclusion, all details and moments of the liturgical celebration should reflect these truths expressed in the words of the Psalm 5. I will enter the house, thy house, O Lord. I will worship towards thy holy temple in the fear of thee. And Psalm 26. O Lord, I love the beauty of thy house and the place where thy glory dwells. The glory of God indeed dwells visibly in the body of Christ, in the Eucharistic body. Since in every holy mass he becomes flesh and establishes his tent, the Shekinah, of his glory in the midst of us. The celebrant and the faithful should consequently say, Yes, we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These divine words are the last words of the Holy Mass, according to the Usus Antiquior, traditional Mass. Rarely one can find words which are liturgically so appropriate to conclude the most perfect act of divine adoration on this earth. We have, we have beheld his glory. Rarely could we find words which are liturgically so appropriate for concluding the most perfect act of adoration on this earth. For in the Holy Mass, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members, as had us reminded the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. Thank you for your attention.